Welcome to our talks on the Psalms. If you're listening to this talk when it's first broadcast, then you're listening in the week before the new year. But is there a psalm for the new year? Well, Psalm 81 has been called the Jewish New Year Psalm. I know what some of you are thinking. The Jewish New Year is not on January the 1st. However, it is a psalm that has a lot of references to the calendar and to times of the year. And so I thought it would be a very appropriate psalm for us to look at this week. My name is Keith Simons. I'm a Bible teacher from England and I present these talks on how to understand the King James Bible using the Psalms. So the heading of Psalm 81 reads, To the chief musician upon Gittith, a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was one of the musicians in the temple. He wrote about a dozen of the Psalms. And the chief musician was the leader of the music in the temple and the worship of God there. The word Gittith is not translated in the King James Bible. It occurs as it is in the Hebrew. But its probable meaning is a wine press. The word appears in the title of about three psalms. And these are psalms which all seem like they might have a connection to the harvest or to the Feast of Tabernacles, which occurred at the time of the grape harvest. A wine press is a place where grapes are crushed to make them into wine immediately after they've been harvested. And so there's our first reference to a time of year, the harvest time. The Bible does actually give directions about the Jewish New Year and it says that the Jewish New Year should be, or at least the beginning of the year, the first month of the year, should be the month in which Passover occurs. That's March or April by our calendar. But the Jewish people today celebrate their New Year, which they call Rosh Hashanah, which means ahead of the year. They celebrate that about September or October time. That's the time of the year when the Feast of Tabernacles occurs. It's the time of year uh, when, when the harvests came in, the final harvests in ancient Israel. And they would harvest the grain not long after Passover, firstly the barley and then the wheat. And then they moved on to the fruit harvest. And the final harvest was the harvest of grapes, um, which would be taking place about the time of Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the seventh month um, and leading up to the Feast of Tabernacles in that month, as I say, about September or October. So that's our first reference to a time of year in this psalm. First one makes it clear that this is going to be, at least initially, a psalm of great joy. We'll see there's a change in the tone of the psalm as it proceeds, but it begins, Sing aloud unto God our strength, 
make a joyful noise to the God of Jacob. Jacob, the the ancestor of the Jews, uh, the grandson of Abraham and the son of Isaac. It is his God we praise. It is his God we bring a joyful noise to. We sing and we shout aloud because God is our strength. It's God who makes us strong. Verse 2. Take a psalm and bring hither the temple, the pleasant harp with the psaltery. So we take our psalm, a song to sing with instruments, and we bring hither, we bring here, that means, the timbrel. The timbrel is the instrument that today we call the tambourine, an instrument that you shake and that makes a percussion noise, a simple sort of drum. The pleasant harp with the psaltery. The harp and psaltery are similar instruments, they're stringed instruments, they make a soft sound, you play them with the hand, and uh, in ancient Israel, you sang with them. So these are, these are music for a song, a joyful song to praise God for the harvest. Verse 3, blow up the trumpet in the new moon. It's curious that the, the King James Bible uses the words blow up the trumpet. Today, if we use the phrase blow up, we'd be talking about explosives. We would use the phrase blow the trumpet or, or perhaps blow into the trumpet. Well, the trumpet was a very different sort of instrument from those which we've just been discussing. Here was a loud instrument. The Hebrew word for trumpet is the shofar, the ram's horn. In other words, you take the horn, the bony point, um, from the head of a ram, a male sheep, and you hollow it out to make it into an instrument that you blow. And uh, in the Bible, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, is called the Feast of Trumpets. It was a time for blowing the ram's horn, for making a loud noise to celebrate the coming of the new year. But it doesn't say blow up the trumpet in the new year, but in the new moon. And that's very, very important time reference when we're understanding the calendar of the Bible. The word month sounds like the word moon. They've got the first two letters in English, M and O. And a month was, in ancient times, the time it took the moon to reach a point where it first appeared in the sky as the new moon. And of course, through the month, the moon becomes bigger or more round in shape, I should say, until, until the middle of a month when it's full and then the end of the month of course it wanes away until it disappears. The new moon is when it begins and the way I've just described it is how months were in ancient Israel. In some years you'd have an extra month so that there were the correct number of months in the year or rather so that the years began and ended at the right time and didn't, didn't change with the different seasons. 
So what this is saying when it says blow up the trumpet in the new moon, it's saying at the beginning of the month, when you first see the new moon in the sky, that's the time to blow the trumpet. That's the time to sound this ram's horn instrument and announce a great celebration. And the Jewish people did at the beginning of each new month, they'd have a feast and they'd have a celebration for the beginning of the new month. But the special time to blow the trumpets, the special time was the beginning of the seventh month, what we call Rosh Hashanah or the Jewish New Year today, when the trumpets would be sounded across Israel. Probably the ancient purpose was to remind people that this was a special month. This was the month in which the Day of Atonement would occur uh, and still does, of course, which the Jewish people today call Yom Kippur, and in which the Feast of Tabernacles would occur. So back to verse 3, blow up the trumpet in the new moon in the time appointed. Now, if you look in a modern translation, you'll see a different approach to the translation of this. They understand the word to mean the full moon. And uh, whereas the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, occurs at the beginning of the month, it's at the time of the full moon that there is a feast of tabernacles. The Passover also occurs at the time of the full moon. But I looked in a Jewish commentary, a modern Jewish commentary, to see what their approach will be to this passage. And they understand that the time appointed is a more correct translation, that it's not referring to the full moon, but that the entire psalm is referring to Rosh Hashanah, the first day of the new month and the Jewish New Year by the modern calendar. So we're going to continue on the assumption that they're right and that this is describing the Feast of Trumpets, the beginning of the Jewish New Year in the first day of the seventh month because it's uh, September or October, six months after the Passover. And that is the solemn feast day. That's what's described as the solemn feast day here. Solemn means serious. Feast day is a day to celebrate. They celebrate in a serious way. Why are they so serious? Well, verse 4 maybe gives us a clue. For this was a statute for Israel and a law of the God of Jacob. It's God who made the plans for Israel's feasts and special occasions. A statute is another word for law. These have slightly different meanings in the Hebrew. God separated Israel's people, the Jewish people, to be his own people. And he had given them these sacred days. So yes, of course, they should be joyful on them, in them. But also, they should remember very seriously what God did for them. Verse 5, this he ordained in Joseph for a testimony when he went out through the land of Egypt, where I heard a language that I understood not. Very curious here that Joseph is used 
as a name for Israel, Israel's people as a whole here. Um, we don't expect that. It doesn't normally happen. When you look at the name of Joseph in the Hebrew here, it's more like Jehoseph. It's got an H sound in the middle, which is added to his normal name. Just as Abram became called Abraham and Sarai became called Sarah. Both of them got added that H sound to the name. And so this is an affectionate name for Joseph. It's also a name that reminds us in that way of God's work. The Jewish people teach that that sound is added to, as uh, uh, a pointer to the name of God. Okay, let's go through the words, make sure we understand the words. This he ordained in Joseph. So God ordained or, or appointed or decided that Joseph should accept this for testimony, for witness, for evidence. When did God say that these things should happen? We get an answer we don't expect here. When he went out through the land of Egypt. Now, we read that and our first reaction is, to think of how God set Israel's people free when they were slaves in Egypt at the time of Moses. But that's not what it says. It says, when he went out through the land of Egypt. That is a reference to Genesis chapter 41 and verse 45, when it records at the end of the verse, and Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. What was Joseph doing? He was collecting in the harvest, the harvest from Egypt's good years to provide for the seven years of famine which would follow. It was the time when Israel's people began to collect grain. And from that time, God had ordained, God had arranged for them to be not shepherds as they were before, but people who collected grain, who would have their own land to live in, where they, they would remain because God wanted them to have a permanent home in the promised land in Israel. But Egypt was not the promised land. Egypt, where Joseph collected and brought in the grain, was a foreign land. This place where uh, the psalmist writes, where I heard a language that I understood not. Here was a place where people spoke not Hebrew, but a foreign language, a strange language, where there were foreigners in the land. Yes, they were collecting grain, but they were foreigners there. And God had to set them free from that land to bring them to the promised land. Verse 6. I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hands were delivered from the pots. This seems to be a reference to how, although Joseph went in uh, as a prince, a ruler in Egypt, uh, how his people and all of Israel's people became slaves there. It was like they had to carry burdens, heavy weights upon their shoulders. 
It was as if they had to do difficult work, making pots with their hands. They didn't become become these grain farmers, collecting in the harvest. No, they had to work for Egypt's people. And yet God delivered them or rescued them from there. He removed the burden from their shoulders. He took away their hard labour to bring them to the promised land. But to get to the promised land, they had to pass, of course, through the desert. They, thou caldest in trouble, and I delivered thee. It's as if it's still speaking to Joseph, isn't it? Thou. Uh, that is the old-fashioned word for you, but you, when we're talking to one person, it's as if as if we're still giving instructions to Joseph, just as it says his shoulder from the burden rather than their shoulder. Or, or maybe it's thinking about individu- individually, uh, Israel's people, each one of them, this applies to, one by one. We see that in the Ten Commandments too, when it's all the people who are told, for example, you shall not kill. But it doesn't say you there. It addresses it just to one person. It says thou shalt not kill. Uh, That's Exodus 20 and verse 13. It's all these and thou's spoken as if it's to one person, even though it's to all the people. Thou callest in trouble, God says, and I delivered thee. When, when Israel's people called him, God rescued them. He brought them out of Egypt where they'd been slaves. He brought them to a place of safety. God says, this is God speaking now. I answered thee in the secret place of thunder. What is this, I answered thee, in the secret place of thunder? Well, a couple of explanations have been given. One explanation is that this was Mount Sinai, where God gave the Ten Commandments. Exodus 19.19 says, And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him. By a voice. Another idea of the meaning of this is at the Red Sea, when it seems there was a storm that that that, that caused the sea to fill up again uh, and to drown the army of Pharaoh, which was seeking to take back the Jewish people into Egypt. Then it continues, I proved thee at the waters of Meribah. To prove means to test something. God tested Israel's people at the waters of Meribah. What happened at Meribah? Well, the people ran out of water and they didn't have faith in God. They didn't trust God to provide for them. No, they rebelled against God. They complained against God. They failed the test at the waters of Meribah, so that although God provided for them, God provided for them for his own honour, and 
He didn't provide for them because they complained. No, God acted for his own honour and gave them water at that place. God was looking after them, even though they were rebellious against him. And with that little thought, the author of our psalm pauses with the word Selah. Now in verse 8, God continues with an appeal to Israel's people to listen to him. Hear, O my people, and I will testify unto thee. I will be the witness. I will state what happened. O Israel, if thou wilt hearken to me, Israel, you should listen to me. The thou here means clearly all of Israel's people, but God's speaking to them individually, like in the Ten Commandments. If thou wilt hearken, if you will listen to me, verse 9, there shall be no strange God in thee, neither shalt thou worship any strange God. So this is God's command to them. They must worship him alone. They shouldn't accept any strange God, not, not the God who's near to them, not the God of the nations that's far to them, not the God of their own evil inclination, their own evil desires, their own lusts, which they were so eager to follow at the waters of Meribah, verse 7. No, they must listen to the voice of God and they must follow no strange God, no false God, not even their own wrong desires and their own lusts, because, verse 10, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. It's God who rescued you. It's God who rescued you when you were slaves, when you were far from him, when you needed his help. He rescued you and he didn't rescue you to make you suffer. He didn't rescue you so that you would be desperate and complain for what you needed. No, God wanted to give you generously to provide for you all that you needed. Open thy mouth wide, he said to them, and I will fill it. All you need to do is to open your mouth and trust in me, and I will fill your mouth with the food that you need, with the water that you need, with everything that you need. I will give you a good land, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where you'll harvest grain, where your harvest will be productive. But did Israel's people obey him? Did they follow him? Well, some did, but most did not. And the nation as a whole found it so difficult just simply to listen to and to obey God. We still seem to be talking here about the people whom Moses led through the desert. Uh, and the whole generation of people that Moses led turned against God and would not trust him, except for two, Joshua and Caleb, whom God allowed to go into the promised land. Verse 11 says, But my people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would have none of me. Hearken, remember, means listen to, listen to and obey, listen to and take notice. Israel's people there in the desert wouldn't listen to God. 
They complained against him. They refused to listen to him. And had not Moses prayed for them and interceded for them, uh, then, then they would have all faced destruction, surely in the desert. So what happens when people won't listen to God, when people won't obey him or trust him? Verse 12 contains the judgment. So I gave them up unto their own heart's lust, and they walked in their own counsels. Your lust is what you desire. Your heart's lust is what you desire deep within you. And if God gives you up to your heart's lust, he just lets you go in the way you want to go and to desire what you want to do and to do what you want through life. And God is patient with you, maybe, and allows you to do this for a long time in the hope that eventually you'll turn back to God. But eventually you'll die. Eventually you'll face the judgment of God. And that was the life these people followed. Most of the people whom Moses led through the desert, they walked in their own counsels. To walk in the Hebrew Bible often means how you live. And this is how they lived. They lived in their own counsels. Counsel means advice. So it's saying they followed their own advice. It's another way to say they did what they wanted. They chose for themselves what they considered was wise. They didn't choose the wisdom of God. They chose the wisdom of this world. They followed what pleased them. They desired what pleased them. They didn't follow God. They didn't obey him. They didn't listen to the voice of God. They didn't follow his law. They didn't put, put their trust in them. And in verse 13, God expresses his despair with how they behaved. Oh, he says, that my people had hearkened unto me and Israel had walked in my ways. Compare that with verses 11 and 12. They would not hearken to my voice. God says, oh, that my people had hearkened unto me. Oh, that they'd listened. Oh, that they'd followed what I taught them to do, the law that I'd given them, the instructions I gave them for my life. Verse 12, it says they walked in their own counsels. They lived by what they advised themselves to do. God says in verse 13, oh, that Israel had walked in my ways. In other words, had behaved in the way that I directed them to behave. I wish that they'd They'd lived in the way that I wanted them to live. I, I would have acted on their behalf. Oh, they'd have gone into the promised land much sooner. Uh, God didn't intend for them to wander in the desert as they did for 40 years. That was the consequence of their sin. God would have brought them straight from the desert to the promised land. And verse 14 I should soon have subdued their enemies. To subdue means to overcome. God would have soon defeated their enemies. And what else would he have done? He'd have turned his hand against their adversaries. Adversaries means those who fight against them. Another word for enemies. So the difference here is, that just as God subdues them in the beginning of verse 14, he turns his hand against them 
at the end of verse 14. God defeats them, and how does he defeat them? He places his hand against them. He acts against them. When you stretch out your hand, when a worker, workman stretches out his hand to do some work, he's turning his strength in that direction. And so when God turns his hand against Israel's adversaries, he is using his strength, his power against them. What was it we said in verse 1? Sing aloud unto God our strength. They wouldn't have had to fight against their enemies or defeat them. God would have done it. And you may be sure, verse 15, that the haters of the Lord should have submitted themselves unto him. You notice this change of wording. Firstly, these enemies are called enemies, verse 14, and then adversaries. And now in verse 15, they're called the haters of the Lord. Those who fight against Israel's people, against God's people, are called those who hate God. Their anger is against God himself, and God himself would have acted against those evil enemies who are carrying out their deliberate acts of wickedness. The haters of the Lord should have submitted themselves to unto him. In other words, they should have given up. They should have accepted total defeat, that God had defeated them. But, end of verse 15, their time should have endured forever. Whose time should have endured forever? Well, certainly not the haters of the Lord. No, Israel's people. God was bringing Israel's people into their promise the promised land. And God wanted Israel's people to remain in the promised land and to have a place of safety there and a place where they would know his provision, where they would sow the grain and harvest it abundantly as a nation obedient to God. But no, their time in the promised land wasn't permanent. They remained in the promised land for many centuries, but the time came when God acted against them. And the Bible says clearly that the reason why Israel's people were taken to Assyria and then to Babylon was that they were not loyal to God and they didn't follow his law. Oh, this is centuries after those original people in the desert. But still, it's a matter like verse 13, where God says, oh, that my people had hearkened unto me. And Israel had walked in my ways. Still, God was so eager for Israel's people to turn back to him, to obey him, to trust him, to serve him. And when they do so, God places them back in their land. And God desires for them to remain in that land as a people obedient to God. And what a promise for the people who are obedient to God in verse 16. It's still phrased as a thought about those people who were not obedient to God. God wanted this. And they, because they were not obedient to God, did not receive this. Not fully, not completely. He should also, sorry, he should have fed them also with the finest of the wheat and with honey out of the rock, should I have satisfied thee. Oh, for a long, long time, 
Israel's people did receive the harvests of grain and barley in the promised land. For a long time, they received honey, wild honey. It describes here honey out of the rock. People didn't keep bees then. If they wanted honey, they had to collect it from the wild bees, which built their nests in tree branches and in the rock. And yet, yet God's provision, the land flowing with milk and honey, was for them. God's provision, the provision of the harvest, not just poor grain, but the finest of the wheat. This is what God promised his faithful people. And at Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the the new year as it is now, and the beginning of the month when they especially celebrated the harvest in the times of the Bible. That's a good time to remember God's gift of the harvest. Once again in Israel, Israel's people are eating the wheat and the honey and the milk from their own land. Once again, they are in their promised land. But God's promise to them, God's promise to all his people is that he gives the finest things and the most wonderful benefits to the people who trust in him. Just as in verse 16, the promise is of the finest of the wheat, the best grain from, for the harvest, the honey out of the rock, the sweetest and most precious thing. These are the gifts that God wants to give to all his people. And so this new year, I hope you'll listen to the voice of God. I hope that you will put your trust in God, that you won't join those who follow their own lusts and listen to their own desires, but will rather serve God and let God overcome whatever enemies, whatever troubles you might have in life. Let God overcome sin and the devil and the wrong desires that you have and serve him faithfully. In a moment, I shall read you the whole, the whole psalm. Firstly, though, my email, email address is 333kjv at gmail.com. That's 333kjv at gmail.com. And now, the whole of Psalm 81. To the chief musician upon Gittith, a psalm of Asaph. Sing aloud unto God our strength. Make a joyful noise unto the God of Jacob. Take a psalm and bring hither the timbrel, the pleasant, the pleasant harp with the psaltery. Blow up the trumpet in the new moon, in the time appointed on our solemn feast day. For this was a statute for Israel and a law of the God of Jacob. This he ordained in Joseph for a testimony when he went through the when he went out through the land of Egypt, where I heard a language that I understood not. I removed his shoulder from the burden, his hands were delivered from the pots. Thou calledest in trouble, and I delivered thee. I answered thee in the secret place of thunder. I proved thee at the waters of Meribah, Selah. Hear, O my people, 
and I will testify unto thee, O Israel, if thou wilt hearken unto me, there shall no strange God be in thee, neither shalt thou worship any strange God. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would none of me. So I gave them up into their own heart's lust, and they walked in their own counsels. Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me, and Israel had walked in my ways. I should soon have subdued their enemies, and turned my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord should have submitted themselves unto him, but their time should have endured forever. He should have fed them also with the finest of the wheat and with honey out of the rock should I have satisfied thee.